Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! As we are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I, I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Give us your Holy Spirit now to illumine this, your very word to us, as we would seek to be molded, formed, and framed, not by any voice, for surely there are innumerable voices all around and inside of us, but by your voice, by your word. And as we engage in this ancient practice of the reading and preaching of your scriptures, bring us into the presence of the kind Lord Jesus whom we need and who is pleased to meet us in grace even now. So, Father, do a good work, we pray, Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you know different bits and parts of my story, so you'll maybe have heard before that I became serious about following Jesus in college, and one of the shifts that happened after that was for my non-Christian friends. It started then, really has continued to this day for all of my non-Christian friends, I became the Bible answer man to them. They didn't have any other Christian friends or connections, so periodically, if any of my friends that are not in churches have a question about the Bible or some headline or Christianity, anger, riddle me this. And so it was years ago now that a friend of mine from high school named Brad, I must have been in my early to mid-20s, so this was seminary, and I said, Brad's my friend from high school. I met him in second grade. He was wearing the first day I ever met him a powder blue collared shirt with an embroidered Spider-Man on it. And I thought to myself, preppy plus Marvel equals friend potential for Jim Anger, whether that was yesterday or today. So my friend Brad called me and said, Jim, I'm reading some poetry right now. And what does Selah mean? 
S-E-L-A-H. What does Selah mean? Now, for some of you, if you've spent time in the Hebrew Scriptures, specifically the Psalter, the ancient hymn book of God's ancient people, the Israelites, every once in a while, in the right margin of many of these psalms, you'll see usually in italics, S-E-L-A-H, Selah, interspersed throughout these psalms. So, Brad was asking anger, what does that mean? And I said, I don't know. And so, what do you mean you don't know? You're supposed to know. That's why we're friends. And I said, well, actually, Brad, hashtag actually, nobody knows. And that's part of the point. That's part of the fun. Scholars, both Christian and Jewish, have debated for centuries, what could this term mean? It's some sort of liturgical or musical term. Nobody really knows what it's all about. Therefore, it's not translated. It's transliterated, where you take the sound of the word in Hebrew and you just put it into English letters. And if you know this altar again, there are actually, especially at the top of different psalms, the superscription, you know, you know, in the superscription of the psalms, there are pretty often untranslated but transliterated Hebrew words that are liturgical and musical terms that there are different theories, but nobody is confident enough to actually translate most of, most of these things. So I will read you a few right now. Selah. You also find maskil, miktam, getith, shigeon, mut laben, shiminit, and some things that we can translate into English but still don't exactly know what they mean. So some psalms contained at the beginning, according to the dough of the dawn. Doesn't that sound nice? Another one, according to lilies. But then back to words we don't know. Alumut, machalath, jedithun. All these words we don't know. But here is one that might be my favorite because it's really odd and therefore very intriguing to me. It's one of those that you can translate into English, but we still don't know what it means. In three psalms out of the 150 in the superscription, it says above, to the tune of do not destroy. What do you think about that one? To the tune of do not destroy. And I think I know what it's getting at there. I do at the same time wonder, well, that sounds like a happy little ditty to the tune of do not destroy. I grew up in New Orleans, and there's an on-again, off-again New Orleans band called the New Orleans Klezmer All-Stars that play lots of different types of Israeli music, and they do a couple of klezmer-inflected heavy metal songs. At least in my head, when I hear to the tune of do not destroy, that's the tune that I have going. But apart from what the tune may have sounded like, nobody knows. What's the idea behind do not destroy? For these psalms. And it goes something like this. The Israelites that were singing a psalm to the tune of do not destroy were seeking mercy. They were seeking mercy. God, do not treat us as our sins deserve. Do not destroy. And in the worldview and mindset of the ancient Israelites or the Bible more generally, that type of idea makes perfect sense. God, do not destroy. God, give mercy. Do not come to us in wrath. Do not treat us as our sins deserve. Fast forward to today. Late modern West, that type of idea about that part of the character of God is really, really challenging. 
is really, really difficult to the point that we don't even have a category for it. It doesn't make sense. God, do not destroy. Don't come in wrath, even though you have the right to. God can't, and God should not avenge sins. Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, Black Widow, Hawk, Hawkeye, Hulk, like they can be avengers. God cannot. And this whole idea of God being somebody that negatively repays for sins, that's distressing, that's disturbing, that's toxic, that's problematic, and it must be untrue. Although, when you go back to the scriptures, that aspect of God's character is more than just a minor theme. You have it all over the place. Old Testament, New Testament, including from the mouth of Jesus. Case in point, it's been said that the most frequent command in all of the scriptures is to fear God. You also have a command when God says at different times, do not fear, which is interesting, but fear God. And that's not a cowering, flinching fear of God, but we're still called towards that. Fear of God in this robust biblical sense is a deep respect and a deep awe for God. But when we think about God avenging sins, God repaying for evil and saying that that's within his rights to do so, I don't blame you, even if you're here this morning as a Christian, and that makes you a little bit nervous because we all drink the same cultural water and breathe the same cultural air. But you can think of it this way. If you miss out on this part of who God is, you're also in danger of missing out on being captured and captivated and raptured by the love and grace of God. God is a package deal. And based on this do not destroy sort of introduction, you might be thinking, well, this sounds like a really dour sermon. I don't think it will be. At least I hope not. We have here a meeting between Abraham, who's been the star of Genesis so far, and another local ruler or king named Abimelech. And thinking about the fear of God, that's both things. We get God's holiness, his judgment, his power, but also as we fear God, we understand his love and grace and compassion and forgiveness towards us. It's in this passage. I was surprised over the past couple of weeks studying this passage, getting ready to preach on it, that it brought me to meditate upon the grace of God. So two parts from here this morning. Hopefully it'll all make sense in about 20 minutes. A meditation on the grace of God in two parts. First, we'll think about the grace of God from a superior to an inferior, and then we'll talk about how grace puts a claim on its subject. So grace, meditating on it, from a superior and its claim on its subjects. Periodically, hopefully at least once a year, something, a rhythm for my marriage, I'm married to, to Emily. Emily and I enjoy taking a break from family and just the two of us going on vacation, even if it's just for like one night in a hotel in Philadelphia, sometimes farther afield, sometimes more than just one night. We love our family very, very deeply, but it's also, it's like the Southwest commercial. Sometimes you gotta get away, right? And one of the things that I love to experience and enjoy with Emily when we're on vacation, something happens that does not happen between us at home. Small talk. At home, Emily and I engage in very, very little small talk. And I don't have windows in, 
to other couples, other marriages. I don't know how common or uncommon that is if you're thinking, what, Emily and Jim don't do small talk on a regular basis, that's totally weird. Well, now you're able to say, so that's how it is in their family. But for me and Emily, we don't do that sort of thing because conversationally on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis at home, there are two primary buckets. One, household logistics and operations. Oh, who has a birthday party on this night? Who's gonna drive? Did we go to Target and get a present? Or what's the dinner plan for tonight because this person's going to be over there, this person's going to be over there. Oh, we don't have coverage for this over here. Constantly churning through the Google Calendar sort of thing to make sure that everything, at least most of the things being juggled, stay in the air to one extent or another. That takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. Then the other bucket is trying to connect with each other pretty deeply. How are you doing? What's on your mind truly? What's in your heart? What are you thinking about? What are you struggling with? What are you challenged by? What are you fearful about? What are you hopeful for? We want to take all the moments that we can get for those sorts of conversations. But then, vacation? You know that extra factor that we don't have on a regular basis at home? Time with one another. We're on vacation, so there's no household logistics that we have to crunch. And then on the other hand, for a few days, just the two of us, we have plenty of time to catch up on deep levels about how we're doing. But then small talk enters back in. Hey, what's that book you're reading? Do you like it? Take a look at that painting that we saw in the museum again. What do you think of it? Look at that outfit that that person's wearing. Isn't that kind of weird? And those sorts of small talky things when we can luxuriate in each other's presence. And I say that to say this as it relates to the sermon series in Genesis. When we've committed for a season to going passage by passage through, you've heard me say in podcasts about some passages recently, the whole thing about committing to going passage by passage through Genesis so far is that I am preaching texts that if I'm just doing a potpourri from Genesis, I'm passing over a lot of these. For some of them, because they're really difficult and challenging, Sodom and Gomorrah, anybody? If I'm just choosing different passages, I look at that thing and say, these are not the droids you're looking for. There is nothing to see here. Move along. But then on the other hand, there are in the book of Genesis, and don't get me wrong, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for all of us. But Genesis is a really big book, and you'll get occasionally what you might call small talk texts. Little stories that aren't hugely crucial for the book of Genesis, but they happened. They're here in Genesis. God chose to record it. But by going passage by passage through, we're able to spend time and luxuriate in the presence of such small talk texts like admittedly the one this morning. This meeting between Abraham and Abimelech. Lots of big things have happened so far. And this is a little bit of a coda, a little bit of an epilogue after the birth of Isaac. Abraham, like I said, star of Genesis so far. Abimelech is a local ruler, a local king. And what happens here is that you have a peace treaty. It's even called a covenant in this passage. In terms of today, a non-aggression pact is formed for Abraham, his people, his livestock, his land, and ditto for Abimelech. Beginning of the passage, 22 to 24. 
At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear. Now for the purposes of the ongoing narrative of Genesis, I think it's safe to say that the purpose of this little small talk passage is to show that Abraham is gaining geopolitical security for himself. If we said, even from the beginning of Genesis, that the theme running through, you could put it this way, and even all, all the way through the Bible, God's people, his place, and his presence. That's what God is always driving to, culminating in Jesus Christ, God's people, his place, and his presence. With the birth of Isaac, you could say that's taking care of God's people. God promised to Abraham, again fulfilled in Christ, your descendants will be as numerous as stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. If Abraham and Sarah don't have a kid, that's in jeopardy. So God's people secured. And here, God's place for now is a land of Canaan, a foretaste of the new heavens and new earth when Jesus comes back. That's got to be secure too. And so we have record of it. Abraham's place, which is part of God's covenant promise, is being made secure. But this is what I want to focus on. The specific power dynamic between Abraham and Abimelech. How they relate to one another here. Because something has flipped. We don't know exactly why. A few weeks ago, Eric Mitchell, who's off this Sunday, was preaching at the beginning of Genesis chapter 20. And that's another episode where Abraham deals really poorly with his wife, Sarah. He moves into the territory of Abimelech. Abimelech ostensibly has more power than Abraham. Abraham wants to save his own skin. He offers his wife, Sarah, to Abimelech and tells Sarah, hey, say you're my sister, not my wife. He shouldn't have done that horrible thing. But here, for whatever reason, the power dynamics are switched or flipped, and it's Abraham who all of a sudden, he's the one in the place of power. He's the superior, and Abimelech is the inferior. After all, it's Abimelech that goes to Abraham and says, hey, can we have some peace around here? I'm getting a little nervous. And then also you have this bit about the well, verses 25 and 26. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, so they make this treaty, and Abraham says, okay, we've made this treaty, but you know that well around here that I dug? I think some of your people have seized it. Can we talk about that? And Abimelech says, I don't know who has done this thing. You did not tell me. I have not heard of it until today. When I read that, it's like Abimelech is saying like nervously, Haha, what well? I don't, I don't know anything about a well. Do you know about a well? How about Joel Embiid's MVP campaign? Isn't that great? You know, everybody's happy here, right? So Abimelech is nervous because he is the inferior here, and he's responsible for the fact that his people have seized something that's Abraham's. And yet, it's Abraham who's the superior that gives a gift to Abimelech. Lots of different livestock culminating in the gift of seven ewe lambs, female lambs. Now think about it. Abraham's in a position of strength. Abraham has been wronged. But Abraham is the one that deals graciously with Abimelech at great cost to himself. And that is a lot of livestock, both the livestock in general and then the seven ewe lambs, Ewe lambs, especially female lambs, super, super valuable be because they can reproduce. 
And so you see lambs there, but what Abraham and Abimelech saw were woolly, smelly, noisy cash. And he gave a huge gift, culminating in verse 30. Abraham said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. And as Abimelech receives this gift, he relinquishes his claim on the well. And all of that dynamic, and Scott Flobin was talking about this in Theology 101 this morning, that's how God deals with us in Jesus Christ. Another covenant, another pact, another treaty, but not among equals. And similarly, God, who is the superior in a place of strength and power is wronged because we sin against him. And yet God, at great cost to himself, deals graciously with us through the gift of the crucifixion and resurrection of his son that we're called to receive. I can think of it this way too. One of the primary things, whether you're here this morning as a skeptic of spiritual realities or still wrestling or you're not sure where you are or a committed Christian, that we must wrestle with is that among other things, the cross of Jesus Christ tells us God is not obligated to deal graciously with us. God is not obligated to automatically think we're awesome. God is within his rights to avenge, to come in wrath. And I know that's really, really difficult. That's part of why we're called to fear him, and we should, but our sin is real. And the cross reckons with our sin. And if you're in a position where you recoil from the very idea that God may come in wrath, it's within his rights, and it's this whole idea of God as an avenger, and why isn't God automatically like predisposed super, super well with us? I would say that that view itself is incredibly enculturated in the late modern West. And if you look around the world and throughout the ages, it's actually a minority port, a minority report from us here in the West that think for the God or the gods or divinity or however you conceive of these things, the majority report around the world and throughout the ages is that we have very little confidence that the divinity thinks we're awesome. In fact, quite the opposite. Look around, and you can think of it this way. If, if we have this hubristic, arrogant idea that we're automatically awesome all the time, that's the type of thinking that fueled colonialism for centuries. Hello, we're here, we're awesome, and you're welcome. So that's an enculturated view itself. But on the other hand, it is difficult but freeing to grapple with these various dimensions of the cross. God was not obligated to give this gift. But he did. But as you think about it, that's good news and freeing because how else could we actually believe that God could truly love us in all of our mess? We can try to cover up to one another, and often we do. We can try to cover up to God, but the God who sees us completely and fully and deeply, how could this God that sees everything actually be graciously predisposed to me? Well, Jesus died on the cross. That's why. So we can actually have a real assurance, understanding that even if the cross of Jesus Christ is a symphony, a symphony of symphonies, 
One of the melody lines of the cross of Jesus goes according to the tune of Do Not Destroy. God, we seek mercy. God, do not treat us as our sins deserve. And that promise is yes and amen through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's the package deal as to why we're called to fear God. You see, we're not called to fear God on balance of everything in the scriptures. Hey, fear God because he's holy, he's powerful, he's a judge, and he might not be gracious to you. That's not the full biblical picture. It's fear God because he's holy and powerful and a judge, and he does visit you in great grace in Jesus Christ. That's why we're called for the deep respect and deep awe. Meditating upon grace, also a claim on the subjects. I said just a couple minutes ago in verse 30, when Abimelech receives the gift of the seven ewe lambs and all the rest of the stuff, he relinquishes his claim on the well. Well, that carries forward too. If you accept the grace and forgiveness and renovation and salvation of Jesus Christ, you, we, are called to relinquish our claims on our very lives. As we receive the gift, we also say back to God, my life is not my own anymore. The Heidelberg Catechism is a famous catechism from the Reformation period of the church. Question number one says this, and I love the balance of grace through and through, but there is a call on us. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. There's that word again. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Or as we sing sometimes here at Liberty Collingswood, Come Thou Fount, do you remember the verse, O to grace, how great a debtor. That's the whole dynamic. Grace is totally free, and yet we're a debtor to it. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. And so the claim upon the Christian is to live in line by faith and obedience with that grace. And when I first encountered grace all those years ago to now, I'm still able to say there is nothing like it, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, in any ideology, in any worldview, in the global north or south or east or west. Apart from grace, there is no analog with this perfect dynamic and this perfect balance Old-timers like me, you'll remember Lee Iacocca, the old Chrysler guy from, from the 1980s, right? And Lee Iacocca was sometimes in his own commercials. And you better believe that if I'm ever the CEO of a company, will I be in my own commercials? Absolutely, I will. So Lee Iacocca was in his own commercials. And one of his famous advertising lines as he rescued Chrysler from bankruptcy back in the 80s, at the end of the commercial, showcasing this awesome Chrysler, if you can find a better car buy it. What a great line. And similarly, if you can find something as good or better 
and grace, show me. But I don't think it's there. And skepticism coming towards Christianity again, sometimes it can be said, well, Christianity is just blind conformity. It's blind faith. But there's a Christian thought leader, Mark Sayers, that I listen to and quote from in sermons, including right now in Australia. He turns that idea on its head and puts it this way. And this is our reflection quote at the beginning of the worship folder. To be shaped by grace in a culture of self, the most countercultural act one can commit is to break its only taboo, to commit self-disobedience, to acknowledge that authority does not lie with us, that we ultimately have no autonomy, to admit that we are broken, that we are rebellious against God and his rule, to admit that Christ is ruler, to abandon our own rule and to collapse into his arms of grace, to dig deep into the roots of his love. That's countercultural. If the song culturally of ourselves is the song of the self, where whatever you do, be true to your own heart, be true to yourself, the Bible comes back and says, sometimes that's a really, really bad idea. And if that's the song that you live by, be true to yourself, follow your heart always, you're going to find yourself frequently in the position of saying, I have made a huge mistake. Because our heart is disordered and wants the wrong thing so often in the wrong ways. But instead, we commit self-disobedience as we obey God instead. Say this one more time. In Western culture, averse to any form of authority has lost sight of the vital truth that authority can be a form of love. In Jesus' gift of grace, we see this truth exemplified, the marrying of love and authority. The recipients of grace find themselves taking a different posture to life. They understand themselves not as endless, open-ended spiritual seekers, but strong language here from him, but for a rhetorical purpose, but slaves of Christ. This is the dynamic of grace once again in Sayer's words. For a human being to be a slave of Christ is when that human being is most free. And we'll wrap up with one challenge and one encouragement. One challenge. Is there an aspect of your life in light of the grace of Jesus Christ that you can bring in to being mastered more and more by grace and obedience? This is true of me. Maybe it's true of you. I'll say, God, you can have all of this in my life, but please don't look over here. You can have all of this, God, but there's nothing to see in this corner. While I shove a lot of important pieces of myself into this little dirty corner that's dark so that I can have my pig pen playtime right over here, apart from God. And what the big print giveth to God our messy fine print can take away. But instead, is there an area of your life where you're able to say, take this too. Take all of it. If grace is for all of me, I want to be for all of you. Maybe we're greedy with our financial selves and not generous. Maybe we're profligate with our sexual selves. Maybe we're hidden. And I mentioned earlier during the call to confession, if you're sitting here on a Sunday morning as a Christian, and nothing happens internally for you when it's a time for silent confession, and this is true of myself as well, I'm not trying hard enough. And we have this time built into our service. Why not use it to be real with God and not cover up? 
But the tricky part and the challenging part too about really being honest with God in those moments of confession, at least the way that the Holy Spirit works in me is, okay, that's great. Have you talked to Emily about that? Are there other people that you, you should confess this to as well? But it pushes us into the light. And one of the great things about how grace challenges us is that we're able to say back, God, you can have all of me. I trust you with all of me, not just part. One reason for hope, one encouragement as well. There's a lot of, you know, thought, podcasts, articles, writings about how human relationships here in the late modern West for a whole variety of factors our ties are becoming looser or more shallow. There's, there's deep ties, strong ties, or loose ties. And our relationships, increasingly, the number of people that we have strong ties with, right? But loose ties, we have a ton of them. But one of the unfortunate dynamics of having all of these connections and relationships that are loose ties is that so easily, even our friends, whether this is work or community or social media community or family, our friends and our family become our competitors and our enemies. And we're always suspicious of other people because how am I going to lose standing before them? Are they getting above me? Are they better than I am? Are they doing better things than I am? Are they having more fun than I am? Do they have more money than I am? Are they, are they better ideologically than I am? Whatever it is. And it's constantly this competition, competition, competition. You know what grace says? And this is why I think the grace of Jesus is good news for our world. Grace says you're not better than anybody. Grace says I'm not better than anybody. But grace also says I am so radically and completely loved by Jesus that I don't need to be better than anybody. And I can get out of that race. One commentator talking about the Apostle Paul later on, way further on into the New Testament, way past Genesis, Paul had his critics and his detractors from within the church and outside of the church that wondered, hey, like, it can't just be grace. There's got to be some stuff that, that, that we can do. And Paul just comes back again and again and says, grace alone, grace alone, grace alone. It's been put this way. Trust in God's grace did not, and one of the criticisms was, well, if it's all grace, you're just going to be a lazy bum. You're not going to work to obey. You're not going to do Christian mission. You're not going to live, speak, and serve as Jesus' very presence. Trust in God's grace did not make Paul less active than his opponents, but rather set him free now to run without watching his feet, counting his steps, without competing with others. Wouldn't it be great to live your life and run for Jesus without watching your feet, counting your steps, or competing with other people, where you're just free to serve everybody. You're freed to love everybody. Not taking, not resenting. During this Lenten season, how might you deepen in your fear of the Lord and find there great freedom? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. 
live, speak, and serve at you later.